From the City of Angels near the Pacific Ocean, good morning, good evening, wherever you may be across the nation, around the world. I'm George Norrie. This is Coast to Coast AM. Later tonight, Financial Alchemy. We are thrilled to announce our newest affiliate, the brand new Freedom 104.7 FM in Washington, D.C. The show will be heard live nightly on the FM band as well as simulcast on iHeartMedia's crystal clear 98.7 HDT. North Korea fired two ballistic missiles into the sea off the East Coast late Monday, hours after a U.S. nuke sub arrived in a naval base in the south. The launches come amid heightened tensions on the northern Korean peninsula as South Korea and the United States take steps to increase their military readiness against North Korea's weapons program with the deployment of U.S. strategic military assets. Israel's got some problems. Israel has passed into law a highly controversial bill despite mass protests which aim to thwart it. The law removes the power of its Supreme Court to overrule government actions it considers unreasonable. It is the first to be approved in a series of bitterly contested reforms aimed at curbing the power of courts. The planned reforms have triggered some of the biggest protests in Israel's history, with opponents warning they imperil Israel as a democracy. Two hikers found dead at the Valley of Fire State Park in Nevada Saturday afternoon as excessive heat grips parts of the state in triple-digit temperatures. Two women had set off on trails at the state park about 65 miles northeast of Las Vegas. They never came back. Tony Bennett, as he passed on, the eminent and timeless stylist whose devotion to classic American songs and the knack for creating new standards such as I Left My Heart in San Francisco, graced a decades-long career that brought him admirers from Frank Sinatra to Lady Gaga, died Friday. He was 96, just two weeks short of his birthday. A publicist confirmed that Bennett's death, saying he died in his hometown of New York, no specific cause given, but Bennett had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease in 2016. Well, after decades of looking for something to do with his X.com domain name, Elon Musk has finally found it. This is what he's doing. Twitter the globally recognized brand that brought the word tweet into the mainstream lexicon around the world, is apparently no more. Twitter is now called X. Lauren Weinstein, our expert on the Internet, has Elon gone mad? What's going on here? Well, George, let me ask you a question. If you owned one of the most recognizable brands on the planet, with hundreds of millions of daily users, a brand known to billions of people in virtually every language, and that has coined common terms like to tweet, known globally over 17 years or so, and you wanted to maybe add some other services to what you were currently doing, would you bring those in under your existing super well-known brand, or would you flush away that brand and try use something else entirely that was more confusing, harder to search for, and easily ridiculed? And I spent $44 billion for that brand. I'd keep it the same. Exactly. So one might reasonably ask, given all the other problems Twitter has had lately, why Musk would do this? And a lot of observers feel that it's a combination of desperation over the financial situation there and his very well-known obsession with the letter X that goes back at least 20 years to his PayPal days and before. And this rebranding, currently with a logo, 
that appears to be simply the letter X taken straight from a common font set is going about as well as you might imagine. That is totally chaotic, and it's giving even more energy to Twitter competitors like Mastodon and Blue Sky and T2 and others, including Meta's new threads, which had enormous initial engagement. And now just today, TikTok said it started a text-based option as well. None of this bodes well for Twitter or X or whatever it's called at any given moment. This kind of instability is not the sort of thing major advertisers want to see. And various financial analysts are now suggesting that this all might indicate that the situation is even more dire than they had suspected and that Musk is kind of flailing around now trying to save his massive investment in buying Twitter in the first place. He talked frequently about turning Twitter into a single X-everything app that does all sorts of different things like the kind of app they have in China, but there are real problems with that approach here. One is that the kind of erratic Twitter situation has probably not inspired much confidence in the concept of moving financial applications under that umbrella. And the regulatory and antitrust environments here in the U.S. are very different than anything in China and would likely make getting approval very difficult. So while Musk is apparently urging everyone now to use the term X instead of tweet, from the outside, this situation looks rather bizarre, and it's difficult to see how this actually puts things on a better path for the firm so as usual, obviously, we'll see what happens in the fullness of time. Lord, we have social media icons at the top of coasttocoastam.com, and I talked to our webmaster, Lex, today. And I said, Lex, we're going to have to take the Twitter icon off and put this X thing up. And he said, I know, I'm working on it. Yeah, well, you know, he probably shouldn't rush that because <laughs> it's possible that that X that we're seeing now is just a placeholder X. Apparently, it was just something someone tweeted at Musk, and he said, okay, I'll use that for now. So, you know, you might you might tell him to, you know, kind of sit on it for a little bit here so he's not making change after change as Musk keeps changing his mind. But it's no more tweet, is it? Well, a lot of people say they're going to keep calling it Twitter, so we'll see what happens. All right, my friend. Thanks, Lauren. We'll talk to you next week. Sleep experts from a company called Amerisleep compiled a list of 96 Google search terms relating to sleep disorders and how to get more rest and calculated the average monthly search volume per 100,000 residents in each state over the last year. Based on their findings, California was ranked the sleepiest state in the U.S. How about that? Dr. Sky, he doesn't sleep. He's always awake. Stephen Cates, what do you have for us, Stephen? <laughs> Thanks, George. You're absolutely right. We begin with space and some SpaceX news, and there's lots of it. Starship Booster 9 is now on the launch pad. That Starship Booster 9 is now standing tall and proud on the launch pad at Starbase in Boca Chica, Texas, with its impressive 33 Raptor engines, George wanting to take the rocket to space. But then the 165-foot Starship 25 upper stage is set to be placed atop the massive, massive booster soon. But a possible late summer launch date is in the works, with now no regulatory issues at present to stop a launch a new water splash pad will be installed on the launch tower to mitigate damage to the pad, as we've seen during the launch, you know, April 20th launch, when it literally destroyed the entire pad. This, of course, big changes. But SpaceX is now the most valued private tech company in the U.S., valued at over $150 billion. There's lots of optimism on future launches of Starship. There's a 60% chance for Starship to get to orbit on this next test flight. And that depends on booster stage separation, which didn't happen properly before, and of course, all the Raptor engines working as planned. But of course, we'll keep you posted. 
But a consolation for big SpaceX fans, a Falcon Heavy rocket, George, is set to launch July the 26th at the Cape. Well, now we go to something historic. The Trinity nuclear test of July 16, 1945, we're now told, will spell much farther and deeper than previously thought. And with all the excitement about the Oppenheimer movie, the interest in the July 16, 1945 detonation is on a lot of people's minds. Going back in history at 5.29 a.m. local time on that date in July 1945, a crude plutonium gadget was detonated, as we know, releasing upwards of 25 kilotons of TNT energy witnessed by an amazing 425 people. But the other type of bomb was the fission uranium bomb, though never tested and then dropped on Hiroshima, as we know, on July and August 6, that is, 1945, the 15-kiloton little boy. But, George, the effects of the Trinity explosion are now thought to have drifted over 46 states, Canada and Mexico. And the radioactive cloud reached an incredible height of over 70,000 feet. But back to space and astronomy. A newly discovered star is broadcasting a radio signal every 22 minutes, lasting some five minutes. No one, of course, knows what this really is, and it perplexes astronomers. It may be a new type of pulsar with a long period, or a new type of magnetar. This exciting discovery, what, opens up our minds to the mysteries of the universe. We wrap it up always with the live sky. People can see the moon at its first quarter phase on the 25th, high in the sky at sunset. But George Venus now dives toward the horizon in the northwest at sunset. We've been used to it for many months. It gets closer, of course, to the sun and to the earth at the same time. But in the telescope, it looks like a tiny crescent, and it's an interesting sight. But also get set for two supermoons in August. One on August the 1st, the beautiful full super sturgeon moon. And then the second on August the 30th, a super blue moon, as they call it. Early Perseid meteors, how to see them, look in the northeast sky between 2 a.m. and dawn during this week and the weekend. And finally, Comet 12P, a comet called Pons Brooks, has had a major flare-up. It's visible in moderate-sized telescopes, but to lo learn more and get the star chart configuration, we always recommend theskylive.com. Emails, we love them, drskyshow at gmail.com. And what do we always say, and we're proud to say it, always remember to keep your eyes to the skies. Simply, I'm your navigator on the highway to the heavens. Thank you, George. Thank you, my friend. We'll talk to you next week. The Global Consciousness Project was based on 500 large-scale events over 17 years. It's an amazing project. In a moment, the founder, Dean Radin, joins us on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Tonight we talk about the Global Consciousness Project with Dean Radin, Ph.D., Chief Scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, Associated Distinguished Professor at the California Institute of Integral Studies. He earned an M.S. degree in electrical engineering, his Ph.D. in psychology from the University of Illinois before joining the research staff at IONS in 2001. He has held appointments at AT&T Bell Labs, Princeton University, University of Edinburgh, and the SRI International. Dean Radin, back on Coast to Coast. Dean, my friend, how have you been? Hi, George. I've been doing quite well. Thank you. The Global Consciousness Project that a lot of people know about, but some people don't. Give us an update on it. Well, the background of this project was... Uh, most of us are familiar with you with things like sports teams and choral groups and any kind of group of people that get together. Sometimes they get in the zone. 
And so when, when the zone occurs, both the audience, if there's an audience, and certainly the people involved in the group, they, they feel something has changed. There's like, like a gelling of the group activity, almost like there's no longer individuals, but there's just one big organism. And some people will then describe that like, uh, like an electric field or some kind of physical effect has happened. So the, the person who started all of these experiments is Roger Nelson, who, who I knew from Princeton University, and he had been doing experiments that he called field consciousness studies, which was looking at this issue about the zone, the feeling of the zone. So he would take true random number generators, which they had been using in the laboratory at Princeton, mm -hmm. but he would take it to things like a theater uh, or a choral group or a religious ritual, something where people get very engaged in the process. And he found that the randomness began to disappear and become more orderly during these groups. And so there are theoretical reasons to, to think about why this would happen, but just from a purely experimental point of view, that's what he was doing. And so he started reporting it, and I got interested in it as well. And so this is back in the, the mid-1990s when all of this started. And so the first thing that I ran was during a broadcast of the Academy Awards. And then later that year, there was the O.J. Simpson verdict, which was uh, announced live on TV and radio. Right. And that, that was an unusual event for a number of reasons. But more importantly, it was considered uh, one of the first times that perhaps 100 million or more people were listening live to the same event at the same time. And so I figured... We knew that that was going to happen. I had five random number generators, and I ran them to see what would happen. And sure enough, it was quite a significant deviation from chance. So I was discussing this with Roger and a few other colleagues. And we decided that these, these one-off experiments were interesting, but there's all kinds of things that happen out there in the world, big events, uh, that we would probably miss unless we were running these random generators all the time. So this was in late 1997 when we decided we need to have a system that is running all the time. And so that was the birth of the Global Consciousness Project, to put random number generators in major cities around the world to collect data continuously, to come up with a formal way of analyzing the data and to selecting the, event, the events that we would look at. They would call and these, so Dean, the Princeton... They, they would call these the Princeton eggs. Was it because they yeah. looked like eggs? No, no, no. The, the egg idea came uh, from EGG, which meant electrogiogram. So I came up with that as kind of a cute term because it was a little bit like an EEG, an electroencephalogram, right. where you put electrodes all around the head. Well, our electrodes were random generators, and it was around Gaia's head. So that's where that term came from. Okay. The eggs. Now, the, the, the Global Consciousness Project, was that the project that spiked during 9-11? Yes. And but, it, it but also other, other events, too. 9-11 was a pretty dramatic one. Uh, but there were massive earthquakes, massive tsunamis, uh, like uh, events like the death of JFK Jr., all these, these large-scale events that attracted lots and lots of attention. And so we 
we kept track of 500 of these events from 1998 to 2015, and that became the formal experiment. Do these spikes occur before the event occurs? In a few cases, we did see that. So, yeah, about three hours before 9-11, we saw that the uh, the worldwide collection of random generators began to deviate about three hours before. Uh, we didn't see it in every case. And once the event occurred, then they really spiked? Yeah. And, and so the spike is not exactly the right term because the effects are fairly small. But uh, statistically, it's, it's quite clear when you can see something happen. that the, the randomness worldwide simply begins to go away, and it's replaced by unexpected amounts of order in the random generators. Yeah. Now, you talked about these 500 large-scale events over 17 years. What determined the events and the generation, the consciousness project? Well, two types of events. Uh, some events were planned. So like the opening ceremony of the Olympics. Right. So those we could specify in advance. Other ones were unexpected things, usually tragedies. Uh, and in that case, in, in every case, whether it was planned or something that, that happened spontaneously, uh, we would agree on how, what we would declare to be an event before we looked at the data. And then once we defined the length of time for the event, we, we would then, especially for a spontaneous event where we couldn't predict it, uh, we would then go look at the data after we had specified the amount of time, and then we applied a standardized method of analysis. So there was no wiggle room at all in, uh, once the data was retrieved. And so that's how we, we did for all of the 500 events. Technically, Dean, how does it work? Yeah. So... When, when people think about, first of all, after the 500 events, we analyzed all of the data, we end up with a, uh, odds against chance of 3 trillion to 1 wow. about seeing the amount of order in, in the randomness that shouldn't have been there. Because all of the devices we were using are, were tested repeatedly to make sure that they were truly random, and they were, except they weren't so random around the time of these events. So how does that happen? Well, what most people think of first is, well, maybe if some big event occurs, suddenly there's a big surge of electricity around the world and all of the electrical grids uh, because people are turning on their televisions or something. Mm -hmm. And that might have been a viable explanation in the 1950s. But today, as we all know, computers are on more or less all the time, and televisions are essentially computers, and they're always on. They're, they may be on standby, but they're still, they're still on to some degree. So even if there was a large-scale event, especially now, people's cell phones are what they're going to look at. They're not going to, they may not turn on a TV, and even if they did, it wouldn't pull a lot of electricity. So this notion that we're dealing with an electromagnetic surge is not viable. And there are many other reasons, too. The, the random generators were built to reject environmental effects. That, that's the part of the design of these devices, so they would not be subject to any kind of mundane influence. So something else was going on. Well, what's the something else? Well, this requires a, uh, a, a little change in terms of our worldview. Uh, and so 
the worldview of science today, most people, the, the worldview that they have is materialism. It's, it's a philosophical term that says everything ultimately starts with matter. Hold on for a second, Dean. We're at a break. We'll come back and talk about what that something else might be on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you with Professor Dean Radin. Dean, so if we rule out some of the other events that you were talking about for the Global Consciousness Project, that something else leads us to think of something metaphysical, doesn't it? Yes. And so the question really comes down to what is the nature of consciousness? And by consciousness, I'm talking about subjective awareness. So the way this is described sometimes is uh, when you taste a lemon, you have an internal sense of what it is, what that taste is like, right? Or and so on. So this has turned out to be a major puzzle in the scientific world, and philosophers have been talking about this for thousands of years. What is this consciousness? Many people today, because of the way that uh, neurosciences have advanced, assume that. Your consciousness, your awareness, emerges somehow out of brain activity. So it gives rise to books like You Are Your Brain. But this turns out not to actually be completely correct, because we know that there are correlations between brain activity and consciousness, but correlation doesn't mean it's causation, right? It may not, it may not be that the brain is causing something, but just correlated with. So as an example of showing that this is really a significant problem, 25 years ago, a prominent neuroscientist named Christoph Koch made a bet for a, a case of wine with a philosopher named Dave Chalmers. And the, the bet was that the neuroscientist said that in 25 years, we will understand how the brain creates consciousness. And so in, uh, in Nature, one of the major science journals, reported a few weeks ago that the, the 25 years is up and the neuroscientist admits that we're no closer today to understanding how the brain creates consciousness than we were 25 years ago, or for that matter, 3,000 years ago. Because maybe so the more, brain doesn't create consciousness, Dean. Yes, that it, it's not coming from, it's not like it's emerging out of matter in some way. So it, more and more scientists, physicists, neuroscientists, and philosophers are coming around to what amounts to a very old idea from the esoteric traditions, that consciousness is simply part of the fabric of reality. And so there's terms like panpsychism and neutral monism and idealism. There's lots of names for this, um, and then these are quite old names. People have been thinking about this for a long time. And the, the upshot of it is that it, it looks more and more like the ancients. We're, we're talking again about probably three or 4,000 years of, of written philosophy, that the ancients' idea about what consciousness is was probably correct. And so from the point of view that you are not your brain, you're partially your brain because part, part of our memory and cognitive abilities is related to brain activity. Sure. But your sense of your internal sense your first-person awareness, that doesn't seem to be arising from the brain. It seems to be something else. And from that perspective, then, the idea that mind and matter may not be exactly the same thing but can interact, that's where it arises. 
and this, this is part of a three-hour lecture, so I can't get into the details here. <laughs> but what I can say is that there's growing both philosophical and scientific reasons to expect that mind and matter are connected. So I think we're all aware of ideas like synchronicity, the idea that Carl Jung came up with. Well, he called it a meaningful coincidence. Not only that, it's a meaningful acausal coincidence. So the word acausal means that things are deeply connected, but not connected in a way that we would normally think of something caused something else. It simply arises, and it arises because of meaning. And so why does the Global Consciousness Project work? Well, because the experimenters assigned meaning to the nature of the experiment. We we said in, in devising this whole thing that maybe when the world pays attention to something, that this creates an enormous amount of mental coherence, this consciousness coherence, and then that would be correlated with aspects of the physical world, which we'll call random number generators. And so we assign the meaning, and then the correlation arises. So it's a very different way of thinking about how, how things unfold. It's not like normal causation. But nevertheless, the effect is absolutely real. The seven, seven sigma effect is how we say it in physics. That's a three trillion to one odds against chance. That's Amazing. not something that you'd expect to happen by chance. It's like a lottery number. Well, way, way better than a lottery number. It's like winning uh, a couple billion dollars in a row in a whole bunch of lotteries. We're talking about trillions, not, not billions. What is the next step, Dean, for the Global Consciousness Project? Does it end or does okay, it continue? So GCP-1, as we call it, the first Global Consciousness Project, it consisted of about, at its peak, about 70 random number generators around the world. And so the formal experiment ended in 2015. We're figuring, well, well, now what? What should we do next? And so we've been working on something we call GCP 2.0, the next version of this. And the website for that is gcp2.net. And people can go there and you can read about this. And the idea is that, first of all, we want many, many more random number generators. So the new project, which is just beginning now, will have, uh, when it's fully loaded, will have 1,000 random number generators around the world. From 70? You have, you're going to have 1,000? Yeah, from 70 to 1,000. Wow. And each of these new generators, their newly designed generators, will have actually four separate random generators inside it. So there will be a total of 4,000 random number generators. So... One of the reasons for making it much, much bigger, much denser, uh, is exactly the same reason you would have with a a couple of electrodes on your head to look at EEG versus uh, like 256 or 512 electrodes. You get with a higher density of electrodes, you get a much better picture about what's going on underneath. So the underneath in our case is Gaia. It's the whole planet. So we're covering... Gaia with a lot of these random generators, and it's providing a, a more detailed way of understanding what is actually happening. What eventually, Dean, will it conclude, in your opinion? Well, one of the things that we're, we're hoping to see is uh, this is probably not a, as I said, it's not a normal causal effect. It is a correlation between mind and matter on a global scale. 
And one of the things we, we hope we see in it is that uh, the, how people pay attention and what they think about collectively actually does have an effect for, for the world at large. So, I mean, to put in, in very pragmatic terms, if everybody's concerned about global warming or the change in the weather, does it matter if a large proportion of the world is thinking, well, maybe we should cool it off? Just, you know, what happens when you have billions of people holding the same intention and attention at the same time? Well, GCP-1 suggests that something happened, something unexpected happened. Well, we're going to have be able to, to detect those kinds of effects with much greater resolution with, the, with GCP-2. This is amazing. It, it truly is. And it, it truly has shown you results that it works, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, something works. We're still at the very earliest stages of figuring out how it works, uh, but that's okay. I mean, like with any any new experiment, it teaches us new things and raises new questions. Uh, but, of course, in this case, there's also potential pragmatic value here that we maybe we can collectively do something, especially for each of us individually feel kind of hopeless in the face of breaking new records of, of heat and floods and all that, what can we do? Well, maybe this would give us some hope that we can do something individually uh, by, by working together as, as a very large collective. That sometimes we're annoyed when politicians say we're, we're giving our thoughts and prayers uh, because it sounds like that's not doing very much, but maybe it actually does. And so that's one of the things that a project like this will help us see. Is it doing something or not? Is the one as powerful as the many? Well, that's a question we get a lot. And so um, the way that I answer that is um, when we see these collective effects, it's a little bit like blowing a soap bubble. That the soap bubble is a, a real thing. It's very fragile. And one person who is thinking this is stupid can break that bubble. So collective coherence that really is in alignment seems to be important. If you have a bunch of people thinking different things, uh, it's very, very difficult to sustain that bubble. So that, that's more, more or less why we were focusing on events that we were pretty sure would be attracting a huge amount of attention. Uh, things like the um, like, like funeral of uh, Queen Elizabeth, for example. Right. Um, Many, many people were watching that and were engaged in it, and sure enough, we saw an effect there, too. Truly remarkable. Several years ago, you wrote a book, Dean, called Real Magic, Ancient Wisdom, Modern Science, and a Guide to the Secret Power of the Universe. Tell us about that. Yeah, so Real Magic was looking at the the, uh, Western esoteric traditions, all of which were pretty close in alignment to what I was just saying about the GCP. The esoteric traditions assume that consciousness is fundamental. And so magical practices are based on that assumption. It's based on the assumption that your consciousness is primary over the physical world. That's why magic would work. And from that perspective, it's pretty obvious that if your consciousness comes before the physical world, then magic is easy to understand. And, and so the, because I've primarily been working on research about psychic phenomena, what struck me was 
the overlap between traditional magical practices and what we've been studying for 140 years in a laboratory under the guise or under the, the name of parapsychology. So, for example, in the magical practices, the uh, divination is the same as clairvoyance. So in the, in the laboratory, we'd study clairvoyance or remote viewing, which turns out to be exactly the same as what magicians would talk about in terms of divination. So they would use divination using reflecting pools and, uh, and crystal balls and that, that sort of stereotypical magical thing. But the phenomenon itself has been studied in, in the science laboratory, and we are able to show that those phenomena are real. So there's some aspects of magic that are real. The same is true for uh, what in the magical world we call force of will, which is in the magical world we, we'd use spells and grimoires and things like that in order to, to change destiny. Well, we can study that, and we have studied that in projects like the Global Consciousness Project, showing that mind and matter really do interact. So again, science has been able to show that some magical um, phenomena or practices are real. And then the third category of traditional magic is called theurgy, which is communicating with spirits. And the closest that science has gotten in that case is through the study of mediumship, uh, in which case the, we, we know through controlled tests that mediums can get verifiably correct information and they're not using methods like cold reading. They can do it under double, even triple or quadruple blinded tests so that you get rid of the possibility that there's some cues getting to the medium. Uh, good mediums okay, can be very accurate and gain information. It's not clear that they're necessarily getting it from a departed loved one, but they can get the information. So these three categories of magic, traditional magic, divination, force of will, and theurgy, have all been studied for over a century in parapsychology, and so we know in principle that those magical practices are real. Why does, so, why does science seem to stay away from magic? Well, some of it is it's uh, probably a feeling of embarrassment, uh, that these ideas are associated with entertainment and with superstition, uh, and but more likely that science requires an explanation first. It seems backwards to me. Science is actually a combination of data and observations plus explanations in the form of theories. But a lot of scientists are very uncomfortable if you can show evidence of something without having a clear explanation. And so that, that's one of the reasons why it has been resisted. It has also been suppressed. Magical ideas have been very strongly suppressed, both by uh, various churches and religions who consider this stuff to be blasphemous. Uh, the stereotype image of a magician is usually pretty dark, and it's like the theme in most horror films. And so there's a lot of cultural reasons why Scientists who, in order to maintain credibility, they don't want anybody to know that they're interested in these things, even though they are. I mean, scientists are no different than anybody else. Right. And we know that the, the vast majority of, of, of humanity are fascinated by these things. They just have learned not to talk about it. Dean, we're going to take a break. We'll come back and chat a little bit more. I want to know about your magic experiments that you did with some items. We'll talk about that, and we'll take calls in our next hour with Professor Dean Radin right here on Coast to Coast AM.